This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line for our first-time listeners Uh, You may wonder what this is about. Well, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Uh, Maybe there's a text of Scripture you're studying and you're not sure what it means or how to apply it, or you're looking for a biblical application to some challenge you're facing in life. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. There's several ways you can reach us locally. The 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. That will put you directly into the studio here. And there's a lot of people who like to call in live, some who simply dictate their question, uh, and we're happy to receive it that way. Others who are okay with going on the air live. So uh, however we can be of help, again, that 843 exchange is 525-1859. We welcome all our Internet listeners. You can use that number, or you can use the 877-WAGP a 980 number. Either way, you can get through, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. All right, Rick, I think we've already had some questions come in, so let's jump in with both feet, and by God's grace, we'll tackle them one at a time. All right, Pastor. Well, our first question comes in from uh, Drew in Lynchburg, Virginia. He says this question is more of a hypothetical. If the opportunity for a child who's been in and out of orphanages arises where he, she could be adopted by the same-sex couple, would it be better for them to be adopted or stay in the orphanage system? I think it would be better for them to stay in the orphanage, but I'd love to hear your perspective and the biblical references contributing to it. No, this is a great question, and, you know, Uh, adopting children out of orphanages, especially international adoptions, where children are coming from orphanages can be especially challenging because you don't always know the history. And sadly, in many nations of the world, there is uh, not the same kind of protective measures that we take here in the States. Uh, With that said, a few verses come to mind. Uh, Immediately in Romans 16, in verse 19, it says, I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil, wise to what is good, and innocent to what is evil. In a similar fashion, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. So I would say to take a child and to put them into a home with two lesbian women or two homosexual men, is to do that child a great disservice. Uh, It's an awful thing. It's a wicked thing. And we've seen just in the last uh, 18 months some Christian organizations who, because of their love for money, 
and their unbelief of not being able to trust God to make the provisions that they needed acquiesce to quote-unquote gay adoptions so that they could continue to receive federal funds. What a disgrace. What a shame. Uh, It will be a sad day when they have to stand before the Lord and give an account to that. Uh, Jesus gave this warning. He said to his disciples, I'm reading from Luke 17, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the, to the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Uh, the Lord Jesus does not by any stretch look highly on someone who's involved in making a child stumble. Uh, Jesus made that clear also in the parallel account uh, when he spoke of, of children in Matthew chapter 18. You know, people said, oh, you know, children, they're a bother to Jesus. And I want to remind you, you're never more like Christ than when you're engaged and involved in the lives of little children. They are the leaders for the next generation. And so when I hear some Christian adults say, well, that's just not my call. That's just not my ministry. They have a warped perspective. They're showing how immature they are in their faith, that they would not care and love for children. But to those who would be involved with children and cause them to stumble, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable, he said in Matthew 18, 7 that I'm reading, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And again, he's speaking this in the context of of little children, how God hates it when children especially are caused to be brought down. And that's really what you're fostering. That's what you're firing when you allow for homosexual adoption. Of course, our government approves it because we have people with depraved minds, uh, upside-down thinking that are running our government more and more. They're in both parties, and it's sad. And, you know, I just think, you know, I was listening to CNN because sometimes, uh, you know, they will have um, some coverage on the Ukraine that I'm interested in because, obviously, we're heavily involved. I've been there some 40 times since our first trip in 1997. Uh, But Anderson Cooper was on, and I don't have anything against him personally. He seems like a relatively nice guy, except that he's gay and he's married. And he was talking about, you know, oh, I can't imagine, you know, the heartache um, my children would experience. So, you know, they've adopted children. And the only hope I have for his children would be a verse like Romans 5 and verse 20, where, where it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I think of a young teenager who came to our church years ago on her own, which was pretty remarkable, ended up uh, coming to Christ, but she had two lesbian mothers. But she found the Lord in spite of that and married a wonderful Christian man. And so God is great. God is big. He can work. in more recently, of course, this woman, uh, Brittany Grinder, uh, this... Um, a basketball woman star. And by the way, I would say to any parent listening to me, you need to be extremely careful, especially when you move past the middle uh, school years in women's athletes to um, make sure 
that your kids are protected. Better for them not to play for, than for them to be brought down because sadly these uh, athletes are covered over in the women's realm with lesbian women. I think of a young woman in our church who's, I, she's a senior this year. I know for her that is a fact because she came through for her senior interview and she's home educated, but she took advantage of the opportunity to play in public school sports. And she was just sharing with me one day that she's one of the few straight women on that uh, high school volleyball team that is covered over with homosexuals. And this is uh, very prevalent. So, you know, Brittany Grinder, she was married before. Uh, she, uh, her quote-unquote wife, had twins through in vitro. And then she divorced her wife, as she calls her, pays child support. Now she's married again. And so, number one, the divorce rate amongst these so-called gay marriages, and I don't even like to use the term, you know, you can, Abraham Lincoln was once asked, uh, he asked a young man, he said, if a, a dog's tail is called a leg, how many legs does the dog have? And the young boy said, well, he has five legs. He says, no, he has four legs. You can call a tail a leg, but it's not a leg. And you can call two women or two men being married, but it's not a marriage, no matter what the Supreme Court of the United States says it is, because it's between a man and a woman. And so it would be far better uh, for a child to be in an orphanage system than to be adopted by gay parents uh, because it's a stumbling block and God speaks out of his protective heart for children uh, with a great sense of passion about those who would cause children to stumble. All right, very good. The thing about live radio is that everything shows, and I need to ask you a favor, Pastor, if you would take that, uh, the, somehow the cord has gotten wrapped around your microphone. Oh, there we go. There Thank we go. you, my friend. All right, good, good deal. Fixed. <laughs> Hopefully less static. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, Paul from Bluffton says, I've got a question on the Jewish feasts. Can you please clarify this for me? In Matthew twenty six seventeen, it states, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the apostles asked Jesus where he wants them to make preparations for the Passover meal. Isn't Passover over on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Is there another translation available for this verse? If so, can you share that with me? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It tells me, Paul, you're reading perceptively. Uh, if you have, like the New American Standard with cross-references, I've turned here to Matthew twenty six seventeen, and you will know from the marginal reference that this account is also addressed by Mark and Luke using the same language. It's not a translation issue, and it typically is not. Uh, so um, the question is in terms of the time frame. So I go back to the book of Exodus, and sometimes, too, you can go out into the margin, and if there's something, what you'll see in the NASB is a verse is divided into several parts. Uh, so you'll notice sometimes there's an A at some point, a B, a C, and so on. And you can go into the marginal reference, say, under verse 17. Uh, in this case, it just brings you uh, to, um, in 17B, it brings you, actually, if you look under B, it brings you to Exodus 12:18 through 20. 
Um, so that would be helpful to read, though that's not a complete reference. So sometimes it's bringing you to the chapter, but again, you need to read the verses before and after. And it also shows you the places here, the marginal note here of the NASB, where it's found in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. And when you read the cross-references, you discover, oh yeah, no, this is a firm time frame. So when I read Exodus 12 and verse 15 here from the NAS, it says, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove dough with yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And of course, if you were here for the last Bible line, someone from, uh, it was uh, Anna from Savannah, maybe. I can't remember. but I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So, um Uh, She wanted to know what cut off meant, and we went through like six or seven different usages depending on the context. Uh, With that said, uh, yeast in the scripture is symbolic of sin. Uh, It's not solely used in that way, but it is often used that way. Uh, And so Jesus and Paul speaks about how a little leaven leavens the whole lump and how sin needs to be dealt with even in the church and left unchecked. It can spread like a cancer. And so churches are to um, love one another because we're members of one another and hold each other accountable. So they removed yeast because it was a symbol of sin. And of course, uh, the Passover meal represented the sinless son of God. You couldn't just use any kind of a lamb. It was a uh, spotless lamb that was examined over the course of five days So it's not by accident that Jesus um, makes his grand entrance where he officially proclaims himself to be the Messiah on Palm Sunday. And that was the day that they would bring the lambs from raised right outside of Bethlehem. Uh, They would, the same place Jesus was born, through the sheep's gate, and they would be examined. And of course, a big chunk of the Gospels deal with the last week of Christ's life where he's examined by the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and so on, and even the civil government, Uh, and he's proven to be sinless. But again, if, um, so I read 1215, if you read then a few verses later in 1219 of Exodus, for seven days there shall be no dough with yeast found in your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native of the land. So, Paul, the genesis of your question, you're thinking, okay, Passover meal, and then seven days that follow um, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But remember, for seven days there shall be no dough with yeast in your houses. That means before that time frame, You have to get rid of the yeast that's in your home. So most Bible expositors would believe that the events here of Matthew 26 that you're referencing, it took place on Thursday of Passion Week. And again, this was the first day of the seventh-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that that was the day that you made sure all the yeast was from your home, removed from your home. You celebrated the Passover, which was basically a meal, 
And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread went another seven days. So good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, Elizabeth from Beaufort says, I understand that the tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. I trust your knowledge and judgment and want to know how you came to the conclusion that birth pangs only happen during the seven-year tribulation. Can you please point me to scripture that leads you to believe that they only occur during that specific period? All right. So it's somewhat of an armchair question, but let me see if I can attack it. If you remember, uh, the disciples had been with Christ. Uh, He had uh, been in the temple that week, cleansed it earlier, and right before Matthew 24 that begins the Olivet Discourse, it says in um, Matthew twenty three thirty seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling, not unable, by the way, but unwilling, and there's a difference. There are some hyper-Calvinists who say, well, folks can't be saved because they weren't elect. Listen, the elect are the willing, the non-elect are the unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when will the Jewish people with their physical eyes see Jesus? After they publicly confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's sometimes in a very sloppy fashion, people are, you know, will take a verse out of Zechariah, they'll look on him whom they pierce, and they're going to supposedly believe at that moment at the second coming. No, they believe before the second coming. It happens before that. And they're going to say, blessed is he, a reference to the Messiah, who's Yeshua, who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to believe first, and then they will see him. And they will mourn for him. They'll be brokenhearted that this one whom they will see with their physical eyes is the one they rejected. So then, again, I'm just putting it in the context. Jesus came out from the temple, was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you see all these? And and he said to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Again, Jesus is making a short-term prophecy. Um, 38 years later in 70 AD, uh, the Titus Vespucian comes in. He uh, surrounds Jerusalem, basically starves them out. People try to escape. It's estimated 100,000 Jews were crucified. They ran out of wood. It became... Uh, such a problem for Titus, and eventually they burned the city of Jerusalem. They were told not to burn the temple, but it ended up anyway, and of course it was covered over in gold and silver, and the gold and the silver melted down and went between the rocks, and literally the Roman soldiers, to get the spoil of the temple, pried apart the rocks and removed the gold. When I go to Jerusalem, Uh, We will stand outside of the Temple Mount wall. Uh, The the wall, people will often ask almost every trip, I I see this wall. I I thought Jesus said not one stone would 
stand upon another? Have they rebuilt the wall? Well, it is true they've rebuilt some of the the temple wall, but that was the retaining wall. The temple sat up on top of the temple mount, and there's a huge pile of stones that are literally the temple stones that they uh, threw over the top. So as they were sitting on the Mount of Olives, uh, the disciples came to him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So they're asking two questions, and he said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you do not be, you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So people often take this phrase, these are merely the beginning of birth pangs, and the argument sounds like this. Well, we've always had earthquakes, we've always had hurricanes, we've always had, you know, apostates and so on. And and so what's unusual, they would say, is that the intensity and the frequency of these things, like a woman in labor, have grown. So this, this must mean we're at the end. And so when World War I came along, that was an argument many Christians use, those who believe there was a future for Israel. And I should say parenthetically that there are people that are called preterists who argue that Matthew 24 is all historical with the exception of Jesus coming on the clouds in glory. Praetor from the Latin meaning past. So they don't take a futuristic view of the Olivet Discourse but they see it all as history. The only thing that's history that's mentioned was the destruction of the temple. Everything else is in the future, and it's a misrepresentation of Scripture. But R.C. Sproul, who largely has driven the Reformed camp now in heaven, knows better, uh, influenced a lot of young men, and this has become very popular. And it's sad because so many of those who are in the Reformed faith, who believe many good things, brothers in Christ, have a distorted view of eschatology, like John Calvin did, who wrote a commentary in every book of the Bible except Revelation. Why? Because he didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, He had a distorted view concerning the return of Christ from heaven. In either case, he's speaking of future events, and the birth pangs, you know, are described in different ways at different times in church history. Some people said, well, these are the birth pangs Jesus spoke of rumors of wars and wars and World War II came. Oh, here it is again. And then Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth in the 1970s. And it wasn't entirely a bad book, but there was some very sloppy exegetical decisions. And then he wrote, I have a book in my library as well called Countdown, I think it was entitled 1980, Countdown to Armageddon. And again, he walks through all these signs and he says, this is it. These are the birth pangs. And, you know, I remember seeing a chart in there and he documented the number of earthquakes that we had going on in the 1980s versus the 1880s. And, you know, well, a lot of that difference was we have much more sensitive seismic equipment and we can detect earthquakes when maybe we couldn't before. And all these famines are growing and this is it. And We'll never trust an exegete who's been married five times 
you know, that tells you he's got some sloppiness in his heart. Number two, I have to give the man credit that at least he's in his 90s now. I think he's like 94 or 5, but I think it was in the last year he came out and he apologized to the body of Christ for his extreme uh, sensational views that made him a multimillionaire. Sensationalism sells. It produces a high listenership on sermons. And so people are saying, oh, look, you know, look at all the earthquakes and the signs in the sky. And no, those aren't the birth pangs. Uh, How do I know? Because when you read the Olivet Discourse, it matches perfectly with the Revelation. So Jesus speaks of false Christs and false prophets. That's the first seal that's broken in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. The rider on the white horse, the horse of deception. And so not only do you have false messiahs, you have, you know, even a man who says, I am the Messiah. And Jesus speaks of that. Uh, Then Jesus speaks of wars and rumors of wars. And again, I cover this thoroughly and extensively in my Revelation series. And there's 70 plus hours of teaching on it. That's the second seal that's broken, the red horse of war. And so while we have, you know, potentially World War III coming at our doorstep, God only knows, uh, that's not really what Jesus is speaking of. He's not speaking of birth pangs during the church age. He's speaking of birth pangs during the tribulation period. Then he goes on and he speaks of famines in various places. That's the black horse of famine, if you remember, Revelation 6, 5, and 6. So the first three things, false Christ, wars, famines, they perfectly match the first three riders. And then there's death that comes. And that's the fourth seal, the pale horse, and all the death that comes during the time of the great tribulation. Uh, Then in Matthew 24, 9, and 10, he says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And again, it continues, false prophets will arise and mislead many. Why? Because lawlessness is increased and most people's love will grow cold. So he speaks of all these martyrs that are going to begin to unfold. That's the fifth seal. Um, where you have a picture of these martyrs who are under the altar, who are slaughtered during the time of the Great Tribulation. Then the sixth seal that Matthew doesn't deal with uh, in detail, but you read initially of some cosmic changers with the six, uh, with this sixth seal that's broken in Revelation six twelve through seventeen, and Luke references it. Uh, so let me just read from. Uh, Turn over to Luke here, the 21st chapter where we find the Olivet Discourse, Luke 21. He says, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines. And then he adds in, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So you have the initial terrors in heaven, not to be confused with the final terrors that are described right before the second coming. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement. Listen to this, Matthew 24 Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so, you know, you had evangelists and 
church teachers saying, hey, you know, we've only got so many people groups left and we're almost right here at the end and we're fulfilling Matthew 24 and so Jesus can come at any moment. Well, the truth of the matter is, is it seems as soon as you reach one people group, you find three more that you haven't reached. And yet there's a promise by Jesus that they are going to be reached. How is that going to happen? Well, initially, that brings us into the next chapter of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, where he heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he describes these 144,000 Jewish men who are converted. How are they converted? We don't know. Maybe it was all those evangelicals in Israel. I've had Jewish people listen to me preach in Israel, as I've have no doubt they've heard thousands of um, evangelists and pastors who have made pilgrimages with um, brothers and sisters from the United States and other foreign nations to Israel, and they will hear them preach the gospel. Well, somehow, maybe it's an Apostle Paul kind of conversion. We don't know, we're not told, but God seals, saves and seals 144,000 Jewish men. They're further described later in Revelation. And after these things, because of what these men represent, and they preach the gospel, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, John's asking this, who are they and where did they come from? I said to them, my Lord, you don't know. He said to them, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Um, And so for this reason, they're serving God day and night. And so in the first half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the gospel goes out not just through these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, but also through two witnesses whose ministry mimics that of Moses and Elijah. And I suspect, as I argue in my exegesis of the revelation, that that's precisely who it is the same two that meet Christ who have a discussion with him on the Mount of Transfiguration of the millennium that will follow this seven-year period. So it's not by accident. And so what we haven't done, it's going to be accomplished. It doesn't mean we sit on our hands and we wait for the tribulation, but what we haven't done will happen through the 144,000, through the two witnesses, and yes, even an eternal angel that will preach the gospel and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who had not heard the gospel before in clarity and power will be saved during that time frame. I'm just about done. The next verse says, Therefore, 
when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Daniel is not a historian in Jesus' eyes, as the liberal scholar would say, because his prophecies are so tight and so remarkable, some of which happened immediately after his death. They said the book had to have been written after the fact. That's been disproved through the Dead Sea Scrolls. In either case, Jesus connects Daniel's writing with a future event that's going to happen, namely when the Antichrist goes in and defiles the temple. And then when that happens, the great tribulation becomes even greater, so great that Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no one would survive. And so now Matthew 24, 15 to 22, that takes us all the way to the second coming, parallels Matthew chapter 8 through 18 with the uh, trumpet and bold judgments that will follow culminating in the 19th chapter of the Revelation with the second coming. So, is the world pregnant? Yes. Are we seeing things happen today? Yes. Are they significant? Well, you can't have birth pangs unless you have a pregnancy. And so we're in the pregnancy, and I would say, if anything, we might be seeing the Braxton Hicks contractions. It's almost term, and one of these days, this world will be ruptured with the rapture, the water will break, and the birth pangs will begin. But we're not in the birth pangs yet. You haven't seen anything yet. This is absolutely nothing compared to what is going to unfold in the future during the time of the Great Tribulation. So great that unless days those days had been cut short, no living person would have survived. So I could sell birth pangs as being today. It would make for great sensation. It would fill more seats, but it would be, in my judgment, not truly accurate to what we read uh, in the Olivet Discourse compared with the Revelation. We've had a caller patiently waiting, so let's go to them. All right. Thanks for holding. We have Alberto uh, from Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead, Alberto. Yeah. I got a question. Why are so many pastors or church members accuse other pastors or church members accuse each other as being a wolf in sheep's clothing? Or I could be wearing a T-shirt that I'm a wolf and yet teach sound doctrine, defend the deity of Christ, defend the heresy, the heresy of Scripture, uh, teach the you know the, the sound doctrines of Apostle Paul and the Book of Revelation, teach it you know literally. Some are, some are, are symbolic, you know. So even though my wear a T-shirt, I'm a false prophet, I'm a wolf, and I can still be to teach the truth and defend this truth. What do you think about that? All right, so it's a good, fair question. And so let me comment. There's what we might call primary and secondary and even tertiary issues. A primary issue is something that you hold with a tight, clenched fist. You do not compromise no matter what. Those would be issues like the deity of Christ, the infallibility in the inerrancy of Scripture, the, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, the literal physical death and resurrection of Christ, the literal and physical return of Jesus from heaven the eternal retribution towards the lost in a place of torment called hell. Those are all tight-clenched doctrines 
by which you cannot compromise that are really marks of genuine conversion. There are some doctrines in terms of fellowship with other believers you have to hold with an open hand. You need to be loving and gracious. So I mentioned my brother in Christ, R.C. Sproul. Now, look, I'm going to meet R.C. in heaven, and uh, he was a good brother. Was he wrong on something? Sure. So in his early years, he was liberal with uh, the use of uh, tobacco and alcohol, the tobacco. You know, that's, this, is, this is the new reformed. They smoke cigars. They drink wine. You know, and I guess they think they're cool and they're exercising freedom. That's R.C. So why did R.C., you know, end up dying with oxygen tubes up his nose? Because he did some stupid things under the name of freedom. But to his credit, because I don't want to defame him or misrepresent him, he publicly acknowledged that what he did was foolish. Um, with that said, he was an amillennialist. With that said, he was a preterist. He approached Matthew 24 as largely historical. The abomination of desolation took place centuries ago. Um, no, there was a a type of the abomination of desolation, but that's not what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. For him, revelation took place with the exception of the return of Jesus from heaven starting in chapter 19. It was largely a historical book. Again, he knows better now. Would that mean that I couldn't fellowship with him? I I always love the example of he and John MacArthur because John MacArthur took, of course, the futurist approach, and rightly so, to the revelation. He saw that Israel had not been replaced by the church while R.C. did, but they could fellowship as brothers in Christ. R.C. argued for infant baptism, where John MacArthur, like 90% of born-again Christians, argued for post-conversion baptism, but they could still fellowship. So I can fellowship with an infant baptizing Presbyterian if he's orthodox on all the critical doctrines. However, with that said, there is a time when we are to practice biblical separation. It's part of protecting the church. It's part of uh, obeying the scriptures. In Jesus' seven epistles or letters in the Revelation, he said to the church at Pergamum, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or I'm coming to you quickly. Um, And so the Lord was speaking, of course, not just to the church at Pergamum, because with each church, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. They should have practiced separation, but they didn't. They put up with sin in the church, and we shouldn't. You know, when Andy Stanley came out again just recently, attacking the Old Testament scriptures, you know, like... um, there's fantasy and stuff in it, and all we really need to believe in the resurrection. This is that's wickedness. If if somebody had some sense of mind and just a little bit of doctrinal knowledge, they should have left his church years ago. 
But you see, because this church is so untaught, this is what opens it up to error. And that's, again, part of the things that are increasing the pregnancy and bringing it to term that I just spoke of in the last uh, question, because there's coming a time while there's always been apostasy, as Second Peter opens with, there's always been apostasy, but especially in the last days, there'll be a growing apostasy. And then in the latter times, there'll be the height of apostasy. And then during the tribulation, there will be the apostasy of apostasies. Well, apostasy takes place amongst those who claim to be Christian, but who are only outwardly Christian, but end up defecting from the faith. And God warns against that. And the biggest of all apostasies, the articular use of the word the apostasy, happens during the time of the Great Tribulation. But for that to happen, you have to have Christianized people who are not really born again. And these are those who are going to defect. And so Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, it does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes and so on about words. And hey, that's a picture of Andy Stanley, the very things that he's been saying. You are to separate spiritually from such people because they're departing from historical Christianity. Likewise, in Titus 3, while we're here, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Hey, look at pastors from the Church of the Apostles went to the pastor of North Point and warned him, why is it you're allowing a very loose view towards homosexuality? You're creating great damage in the body of Christ in the broader Atlanta church, but he didn't have ears to hear. Um, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted in his sinning, being self-condemned. Uh, likewise, in Second Thessalonians, uh, the apostle, again, underscores the need for a biblical separation. Why? Because there's false Christ, there's false teachers, and we're to protect the church. So today, if you speak out against someone that isn't erroneous, you're viewed as critical, you're viewed as divisive, you're viewed as insecure, when in reality you're actually being obedient to what you are to do as a shepherd to protect the sheep. (coughs) Excuse me. And so, again, God makes it very, very clear in 2 2 Thessalonians that we're to protect the sheep. Anyway, we've got a caller, so I'm going to leave it there rather than read further, and let's go to this live caller. All right, very good. Thank you so much, caller. And now let's go to our next caller. Nancy is standing by. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Okay, good morning. Um, I have a question, and it relates to Jan Markell and Jonathan Kahn. I believe it was in early, um, like in uh, 2012, rather, um, that Jonathan Kahn wrote the book, The Harbinger, and I was talking to someone who was talking about Bible prophecy, and they mentioned this book. Well, when I researched it, it seems to me that there was a lot of false prophecy or false teaching in this book. And I was trying to figure out why um, Jan Markell, at least at the time, 
gave credence to him, but she doesn't anymore? I, I don't, I'm trying to understand all this. Oh, it's a good question. Jan Markell's a good lady. I don't disparage her. Um, but like anyone else, we can read someone and think, oh, this is, this is okay. And, you know, and of course, one of the hallmarks of her ministry, especially, is not just, um, you know, dealing with current issues in the body of Christ, but largely she calls herself all of tree ministry because, of course, she's a Jewish believer and she's using the imagery from Romans chapter 11 where Israel is pictured as the olive tree branches are broken off so the Gentiles can be grafted in. And so she's very passionate as it deals with issues concerning the return of Jesus from heaven. And I think the harbinger might have, you know, created and evoked some thoughts along those lines. So maybe a little bit too quickly she came out. And I'm sure we've all made mistakes in that realm Uh, With that said, she's done the right thing, and she's disavowed a previous position that she held to, so you give her credit for it. So it's very important that before you jump too quickly onto someone's ship that you research it. And and let me give you another example with Jan. She would habitually refer to getting back to an earlier question is what we're seeing today is the birth pangs. Uh, I happened to hear her yesterday on a um, panel in, in, in here. She's very careful, too, because <clears throat> sometimes she's asked to speak and mix audiences, but she's very careful not to teach doctrines, so to speak, uh, opening the scriptures like a man would and exposit it. And even <clears throat> on some of these uh, uh, prophecy roundtables, I think it's called, um, where she is dialoguing, uh, one of the men was speaking about, well, these are the birth pangs. And she was very careful not to, like, say, well, you're wrong. But when she had a chance to speak, she said, in deference to things she had taught earlier, that the birth pangs that are described in the Olivet Discourse are in reference to the tribulation period and not to uh, the, the church age, which is what we're in now. So she kind of corrected herself, and I think because she had a friend of mine who I did a uh, conference with for Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham, where we spoke together. We both went to Dallas Seminary, and she read one of his books who took a very similar position that I was taught at DTS by Dwight Pentecost that, no, what we're really seeing in the Olivet Discourse is uh, the birth pangs that happened during the tribulation. So she kind of self-corrected. So again, that doesn't make her a bad person or a false teacher. Um, so she was, I think, in humility able to correct that. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Very good. Don wrote, or actually dictated his question. He would like to know, should one be buried or cremated? You know, that's a, a great question. And it often comes up on the Bible line and the, uh, the answer is no, um, not if you want to follow the biblical pattern. There are some things that we do by biblical command. There are other things that we do by um, biblical example. For instance, technically, there's not a command to have deacons, but there's an assumption in the New Testament that you'll have deacons in the church. And so when you read, for instance, and there's only two remaining offices that continue forward in the church. He writes, for instance, in Philippians 1, 1, to all the saints, 
That's what we're all called. If you know Jesus is Lord, it's not some select few. Every believer is a saint. You can call me St. Carl if you so choose. Just don't pray to me. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers or elders and deacons. So there's an assumption there'll be deacons. So we follow the example of deacons that were established in Acts 6 um, through the example that we find in the local churches of the New Testament. Well, likewise, we follow the example of burial versus cremation through the biblical example that God has set forth. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all wanted to be buried. Indeed, they were, as were their wives. Joseph, um, they put him in an ossuary. Uh, The way the Jews would often do it, it's kind of interesting, is they would have a tomb, and your body would be laid in that tomb until it decayed, and then they would collect your bones and put them in a box called an ossuary. And so in a single tomb, you could have multiple family members because their bones after the flesh had uh, disintegrated uh, were put into a box. And so they picked up a box of bones. His name was Joseph because his request, his dying request was that he be buried in the land of promise. And indeed they did that some 400 years later. They didn't forget the bones of Joseph And they buried him in the promised land. Uh, In the New Testament, again, you find examples. Ananias and Sapphira, they're in disobedience, but nonetheless, they're buried. John the Baptist, he was beheaded, but the disciples gathered his body and they buried him. They didn't cremate him. They buried him. Uh, Again, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, Paul likens uh, a seed put in the ground that looks dead and lifeless to someone burying a body. We bury the body in faith with a sense of expectation, just as you plant the seed in the ground with a sense of expectation that life will come, that God will raise that body from the grave. And I suppose the classic example that I left for last in terms of why we should bury and not cremate comes right at the end of the Torah in the last book, Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. God fulfilled the promise that he made to him. The Lord said, this is the land, verse 4, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, he who, the Lord, Yahweh, he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. Um, And so when God performs a funeral, he buries him. And so Christians say, well, it's more money. Well, some of those induced costs are your own fault. You don't have to buy a $5,000 box. You can buy one from Costco, have it in your garage if you want. Or you could say, actually, all I want is a pine box. I don't even want felt on the outside. Or you can get the advanced version of a pine box with felt. Um, My brother once made a a casket for one of his friends who was expectantly six months away from death, didn't want to spend money on a box. And so when he died, it was all made. And it was carried to the funeral home, and that's what they buried him in. So what if it costs you a little bit more? 
that's okay. In fact, there's a few states where you still don't even have to bury in a box. You can wrap the person in a sheet and drop them in the ground. But there's a respect that is to be done with the body with a sense of expectation that God is going to raise that body from the grave into heaven. And your funeral will have much more punch when your last will and testimony is publicly preached by some pastor when there's a body there. You lose a lot of the open tear ducts when there's no body. It's just the reality of it. Um, The whole atmosphere is different, and there will be people who come to your funeral who don't know the Lord. I think we have time for one more. What's this, Linda from Wyndham, Maine? I see here. We've only got about two and a half minutes. All right, Um, go ahead. Let's go for it. Linda says, I have a question about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. How did you get the number of 120 people that received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? I thought it was only the 12 apostles. I teach Good News Club lessons every Wednesday night. My next lesson is Acts chapter 2. I always listen to your series before I teach. Thank you. Okay, so I think what you're doing is you're converging two passes in your mind, and even they're not 100% accurately, where Jesus is in the upper room prior to Pentecost, uh, eight days after the ascension, uh, after the resurrection, he says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And it's not just even the 11 apostles present. There's a number of women and others that are there in that upper room. And it was a prophetic statement of what was going to happen on Pentecost. I have a whole sermon on that and walk people through it. But specifically, as it relates to Acts 2, where the Spirit of God comes, you have to, again, remember that the chapter and verse divisions a lender are artificial, and in Acts one fifteen, at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And so he gives this little short sermon about the need to select a 12th because it was prophesied that one apostle would defect, and he gave some of the prerequisites for this person to be selected, and of course they end up uh, selecting um, a twelfth a, a apostle to take Judas. His name is uh, Joseph, called Barsabbas, the son of Arba Abbas, um, also called um, Justice, and and so forth. Along with Matthias, two are presented, and they select one of those two. Matthias is the one who's selected to take Judas's place. Then, when the day of Pentecost had come. And I would argue that they're actually in a different location at this point because on Pentecost, as a pious Jew, you would go to the temple to pray. They spill out of the temple and uh, they end up uh, preaching from after having been in the temple. They leave this upper room and they, they preach to thousands of people. So it's actually, it's not even the 120 who receive the Holy Spirit on that day. Thousands of other people do as well. Hey, Linda, I appreciate you teaching children. That's a great thing. God bless you. 